Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome to CSIS. Uh, my name is Sarah Ladislaw. I'm the Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy and National Security Program. And we're delighted for all of you to be here this morning for a conversation with Senator John Cornyn on the U.S. energy resources in the global landscape. Um, before we get started, it is my responsibility to make sure that you've all paid attention to where the emergency exits are. We don't expect uh, uh, oil and gas producer in the world, have one of the largest producing basins in the world uh, in the great state of Texas and into New Mexico. Um, it's really hard to overemphasize the way in which the U.S. energy landscape has changed and what that means for the U.S. on a whole host of issues. And we're really, really pleased that Senator Cornyn could be here today to give us some of his perspective on that. Um, Senator Cornyn is a, a man that needs no introduction, a senator from the great state of Texas, uh, and as we were just talking, uh, 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 going on a f to be a fourth uh, term uh, member of Congress, uh, and has served uh, in uh, various capacities uh, in the U.S. Senate and also uh, in the great state of Texas for, uh, for about 30 years. So um, without further ado, uh, welcome, uh, please join me in welcoming Senator Cornyn. Thank you, Sarah, for the uh, introduction, and I'm glad to be back at uh, CSIS. This is, I guess, my third third gig here, and I'm always grateful to join some uh, real experts. There are a lot of people who claim to be expert on Capitol Hill, but uh, uh, you find they're sometimes the uh, they don't live up to their billing. Uh, but I'm glad to be here among real experts to talk about something that uh, I think is very important, but it, which in the end is a tremendous uh, good news story. So thanks for having me back. A great American journalist and author, John Gunther, once wrote, if a man's from Texas, he'll tell you. If not, why embarrass him by asking? Well, I'll tell you, I'm from Texas, as you heard, which means a couple of things. Number one, I've always had a keen interest in the energy sector for pretty obvious reasons. And number two, I'm still not over the Astros loss uh, last week. Well, in addition to powering our cities, homes, and cars, the energy sector propels our economy and delivers affordable energy and, reli affordable and reliable energy for consumers. By one estimate, uh, low oil and gas prices have resulted in a, a $3 trillion uh, wealth transfer uh, from producers to uh, consumers over uh, over recent years. Uh, so low energy prices are enormous benefit to, uh, to consumers and certainly to the economy. But when there's a disruption, whether it's small or large, to our global energy supply, I also pay attention, and I know you do too. A couple of months ago, a drone hit the Saudi uh, oil infrastructure and knocked out about half of the kingdom's production capacity. History's taught us that any massive disruption is all but guaranteed to lead to tremendous price spikes. So we all braced ourselves for the impact. On the first day of trading after the attack, prices rose sharply to the highest single-day crude oil price in the last decade. But after that was what was really interesting. Those increases were mostly blamed on uncertainty and uh, were short-lived. Price Prices quickly began to drop, and by uh, September the 30th, just two weeks after the attack, prices had fallen below the pre-disruption levels. Pretty amazing. Where were the lasting price hikes, the long lines at the pump, the cascading market instability? 
Well, what was so remarkable about this attack is how unremarkable its impact was globally. When the world suffered the largest oil disruption in decades, the impact was relatively muted. I'd like to spend just a few minutes with you thinking about some of the factors that led to this tiny ripple. And then I'd like to spend some time talking about the future and how we can continue to stay at the forefront of the global energy economy. But let's first go back to the 70s. Some of us whose hair is, uh, uh, is a, a bit wider can remember when the U.S. supported our friend Israel in the Yom Kippur War in 1973. The Arab members of OPEC, or as many Texans lovingly refer to them as the cartel, they were not happy. They banned the sale of crude oil in the U.S. and it sent shockwaves throughout the country. Despite strong domestic production, we were still relying predominantly on imports from abroad. And once that supply was cut off, well, you know what happened then. Prices quadrupled. Suddenly, we felt the impact of our energy dependency. Many gas stations were serving customers by appointment only. Some, signs, or some states banned neon signs to cut down on energy use, and a number of towns asked their citizens not to put up Christmas lights. Well, it was a hard dose of reality for America, and it brought our energy dependence to light stark, starkly and underscored the need to increase our domestic resources and wean ourselves off of this dependency on imported oil. Less than two years later, the Congress placed a ban on the export of crude oil. The idea was to grow our oil reserves here at home and protect the United States from future disruptions to the global supply. But after decades of advancements in the energy sector, the export ban has proved to be, did prove to be an antiquated protectionist policy rather than an economic safeguard. Hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling have dramatically increased the production of American oil and gas. In short, the shale revolution revolutionized the tide of the energy landscape in our favor. Now with the surplus of American oil and gas available to share with global markets, we knew it was time to lift the ban and provide new opportunities for American producers to propel our economy, strengthen our national security, and help our friends and allies around the world. Almost four years ago, that's exactly what Congress did. We finally ended the 40-year-old crude oil export ban, which provided an adrenaline shot to the economy and rearranged the geopolitical landscape dramatically. Soon, American crude, which had previously been exported almost exclusively to Canada, was finding its way into global markets. According to the Energy Information Administration, U.S. production has been steadily climbing. From the first full month after the export ban, uh, it was lifted through July of this year, U.S. crude oil production has increased by 2.6 million barrels per day, and exports are up by 2.2 million barrels per day. Not only are we producing and selling more oil, we're less reliant on imports. Last December, for the first time on record, the U.S. exported more crude oil and fuel than we imported. And just this week, we learned that we broke another record. The value of petroleum exports exceeded 
that of imports. Well, they don't call, call it black gold for nothing. The oil and gas industry has been a boom to our economy, supporting more than 10 million jobs here at home and contributing about 8% to our gross domestic product. But doing away with an outdated protectionist policy didn't just propel the economy, it provided the fuel needed to strengthen our alliances around the world. Several years ago, many of our allies in Europe relied on Iran and Russia for their energy needs. And the Baltic states, NATO allies, by the way, relied almost entirely on Russia for their oil, gas, and electricity. Seven European countries depended on Russia for at least four-fifths of their gas. And on the whole, one-third of the gas Europe consumed came from Russia. When our allies are looking to our adversaries for basic needs like heating, electricity, and fuel, that's obviously a problem. It's a strategic vulnerability, and not only for those countries, but also for the United States. My, uh, my good friend John McCain used to talk about Russia as a gas station masquerading as a country. Having our allies over the barrel, so to speak, because of a lack of energy diversification gives Russia way too much power. That was underscored in January of 2009 when Russia effectively turned off the lights in Ukraine for three weeks. That affected at least 10 countries in Europe whose natural gas traveled through Ukraine. Today, Russia is still the dominant natural gas supplier for Europe and its market share continues to grow. Last year, Russia supplied 37% of natural gas in Europe, up 7% from 2014. Of course, none of this is lost on our friends in Europe. They understand how vulnerable this makes them. So these countries have been working to diversify their energy supply and build a strategic gas interconnectors between countries that likewise are relying on Russia for natural gas. In July 2018, the U.S. and EU agreed to strengthen energy cooperation and send more American LNG to our European allies. Reducing other countries' reliance on Russia and other rogue nations for their energy needs isn't just a win for America. It's a win for global security. It's allowed us to provide cheap, plentiful, and reliable energy to countries that are struggling to provide energy for their citizens. Here at home, it's easy to take dependable energy for granted. We all do. You don't worry about how you're going to cook your dinner tonight or fill your gas tank. Or, uh, But count, in countless countries around the world, it's a completely different story. Take India, for example, which is trying to keep pace with the rapidly growing energy needs. Huge swaths of the population still lack reliable access to energy. So they burn cow dung, coal, wood pellets, or other high emissions sources. But we now are helping them by providing cleaner and more reliable energy to one of our closest partners in that part of the world. Last year, we more than doubled the amount of LNG exported to India, and the sky's the limit. I recently was at an uh, event in Houston. Texas with Prime Minister Modi, uh, aptly named Howdy Modi, and uh, one of the one of the centerpieces of that great uh, of that appearance there was the signing of a of a new 
export agreement for more natural gas uh, to India. So American energy is not just boosting our economy and supporting our allies, it's also lifting people out of poverty. Can you imagine what a difference it makes to be able to cook your food with natural gas or LPG instead of uh, cow dung? Uh, this, is, uh, this is really uh, a great success. While oil and gas continue to power the United States and our allies around the world, that does not mean we should turn our back on alternative energy. By the way, um, a little known fact, Texas is the leading uh, producer of electricity from wind energy. We like to say we're number one, and we are when it comes to producing electricity from wind. We truly believe in an all of the above energy policy. I'm not talking about the Green New Deal though. As expensive and unrealistic as this proposal is, or this notion is, it would derail the progress we've made toward global energy security. But it's important to remember you can support natural gas and oil and innovation and conservation. In fact, I think what we've seen time and time again is that uh, American entrepreneurs, investors have found their way to innovate their way out of problems. And I have every confidence we can continue to do so in the future. So they are not mutually exclusive. We have the power to harness American ingenuity and craft smart energy policies to secure our place as the global leader in energy innovation. There are some challenges, obviously, and we are not alone. We are competing with other countries. But to see some of the types of solutions that we're after, you might want to uh, stop off in LaPorte, Texas at the Net Power Plant right outside of Houston, as I did about a year ago with Senator Collins from, uh, from Maine. Net Power has developed a first-of-its-kind power system that generates affordable zero-emissions electricity. Using their unique carbon capture technology, they've taken natural gas, one of the least expensive and most prevalent energy sources, and made it emission-free. It's a great example of the technologies we should be developing here at home and exporting around the world. I've introduced legislation in the Senate to incentivize the research and development of carbon capture technology for natural gas and support energy innovation. And I think uh, the net power plan is exhibit one in that effort. It shows how this actually can work, how we can keep costs low for taxpayers and continue this revolution in the energy sector while being sensitive to the environment. The leading act which is, is what it's called, uh, passed the Energy and Natural Resources Committee this summer, and I'm hopeful we can take it up in the Senate soon. These policies are important for conservation, but also for securing our economic competitiveness on the world stage. American company, if American companies don't produce these technologies first, well, you can be confident somebody else will. But I'm proud of the fact that my state is, has shown that you can promote energy innovation while harnessing the power of traditional oil and gas development, but you can also be pro-energy, pro-innovation, and pro-growth. That is the future of the global energy market. Well, I know uh, as we consider how all of this has played into the Saudi attack in, in, uh, in September, I'd like to recommend a book that uh, I read recently by Harvard professor Megan O'Sullivan called Windfall. 
She explores America's newfound energy abundance and dives into the altering geopolitical landscape and the challenges and opportunities it presents. In the final chapter, she notes that an energy abundant world is not necessarily a world free from spikes in the price of oil and gas. Prices can be affected by everything from geopolitics to natural disasters to technology to policy and price spikes to some extent will always be with us. But Dr. Sullivan continues by saying the key difference is such spikes are likely to be less enduring and will tend to have tactical implications rather than being long lasting and carrying strategic consequences. So the impact of the recent Saudi attack as we saw was a far cry from the reaction after the 1973 oil crisis. You don't have to make an appointment to fill up your gas tank. You can see the glow of business lights on Main Street and you can enter the holiday season knowing that no, you don't have to dispense with your Christmas lights. As a number of my Senate colleagues who were running for president have indicated a desire to reinstate the oil export ban, even going so far as to expand it to all fossil fuels, I could not disagree more. And I wish they would come to wonderful forums like this at CSIS and explain how they're going to do that. Right now, fossil fuels account for four-fifths of the world's energy resources, four-fifths, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. The shale revolution and lifting of the oil export ban have made us the leader on the world stage when it comes to energy production and bolster both our economy and our allies' security. While some rogue nations will continue to use energy as a weapon to tear down their adversaries, we will use it as a tool to lift up our allies, improve global security, and defeat poverty in places which are energy insecure. Again, I'd like to thank all of you for the opportunity to be here today. And with that, I'm happy to answer a few questions from uh, first from Sarah and then I understand we'll have a chance to take some from the floor. Thank you very much. which is there's been an amazing sort of, you know, surge in U.S. oil and gas production, certainly, you know, unprecedented. I think it's done all of the things that you've talked about and can have a lot of the geostrategic benefits that you've talked about. There are concerns, though, as you mentioned, on the other side of the aisle, both in terms of the, the reputation of hydraulic fracturing, often, you know, talk about it as fracking, um, both for the potential for local environmental impacts, but probably on a more strategic level, and this is where it gets into the oil export ban, it's contributions to global climate change, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, the big differentiating factor here is, yes, we can produce all of the energy we have today, and we can think about innovating, 
But the concern is that we're not doing any of that fast enough, right? And emissions are rising. And so I just wanted to talk to you about when, when people say to you, hey, we should have a ban on fracking because mm -hmm. the, the climate crisis is so serious, right? What, what, do, you, what do you do with that, that thought, both as a policy device and what it's trying to signal about our national conversation on energy? Well, as, as I said, um, I think we've always found our way to uh, innovate out of problems. Mm -hmm. And um, while I'm not going to debate whether humans have an impact on the climate or climate is changing, I think uh, <laughs> what I'm really interested in is what do people propose to do about it. Mm -hmm. And um, if they're proposing the more power in the central government, more taxes, more regulation, a lower standard of living, less competitiveness, um, that doesn't strike me as, as, a, as a good solution. If they're talking about doing what we've always done, and that is investing in research and coming up with innovative solutions like the net power plant, which is a, a zero emissions um, test case, uh, I think that's the kind of thing we need to do. And as you and I were talking about earlier, some of the things that are the most obvious uh, when it comes to climate are things like nuclear power. Uh, which, uh, because of the low price of natural gas, may not be commercial uh, in its traditional form, but I don't know how you can be serious about climate and, uh, and be anti-nuclear. Uh, so I'm, I truly am an all-of-the-above kind of guy, but again, I don't know how you replace the four-fifths uh, dependency on energy uh, on fossil fuels uh, immediately. And I'm honestly a little bit, um, you know, we found that uh, these models uh, this is not, you know, a scientific experiment where you can replicate the results. This is really a model that predicts future, uh, the future. And I remember growing up, uh, Paul Ehrlich wrote a book called The Population Bomb, uh, where he predicted that millions of people were going to starve to death because the population would outpace the food supply. Well, he didn't, he, he, he didn't uh, consider Norman Borlaug. Uh, the father of the green revolution that would that would address that again through innovation and uh, as one of my favorite books uh, super freakonomics uh, <laughs> use the example of, uh, of horse-drawn carriages and transportation and the byproduct of that of course were huge piles of manure in our cities and you can imagine what an environmental hazard that was and they point out it went away almost overnight and how did that happen well, it's called the internal combustion engine. So I just think that um, I'm interested in people talking about what they propose to do, and I think we should get past this, this silly argument about whether human beings have an impact and whether it's changing. I accept both of those things, uh, and let's just talk about how are you going to solve the problem. So one more question on sort of the environmental side of the ledger, and, and you mentioned conservation a number of times. I mentioned we had this Permian Country event, you know, to mm -hmm. sort of talk about everything in the Permian Basin, the enormous economic impact it's had, the you know, sort of enormous oil and gas production impact it's had. One of the questions I get a lot from both conservation-minded folks here in the U.S., but then also people <coughs> abroad who are thinking about the emissions impact of U.S. oil and gas production is just the large amounts of flaring that's going on, particularly in Texas and, and, and the Permian Basin. And, and there's lots of reasons why some of that is happening, but I think that there's a, a sort of a general concern that it, even though the U.S. is producing so much, it looks wasteful. It looks like we're not doing it in a responsible way. What, what do you think about that? Well, I, it has that gas has value, and I assume if there was a 
technology to be able to put it in a pipeline and sell it to somebody that it would be done. And I'm not an expert in the in the the, the, the details of that, but um, and I know, but I do know there are people working on that problem. There are going to be, I think, about 10 new pipelines coming on on uh, online here in the near future. And I think, in a way, we just got so much that that's a byproduct. It's not. Uh, something we want is something we need to fix and uh, but if we can figure out how to put it in a pipeline and sell it and uh, lift somebody out of poverty give them a opportunity to use that instead of cow dung to cook their dinner that seems uh, like a good thing okay um, on the geopolitical side of the equation uh, I thought you laid out the landscape in, in a very interesting way one of the things uh, again is there's lots of ways of reading the changing geopolitics for the US in terms of being the largest hydrocarbon producer in the world one of the questions we have a lot is does the US not care so much about the Middle East and relationships with Saudi Arabia strategic relationships with Saudi Arabia is that the message to take away from some of this you seem to have a, a different perspective about leaning forward and helping allies but um, but but there is also this sort of concern that there's a lot of instability in the Middle East right now there's attacks on energy infrastructure all the time is it your sense that that U.S. you know, um, sort of politicians in particular feel kind of separate from that now because of the lack of a price response? Well, I do think there's been a, a little bit of a shift, but I think it'd be a mistake to ignore what's happening in the Middle East. Obviously, we found on 9/11 that uh, that the problems they have there don't stay there, and they can export them to the United States, like uh, occurred on 9/11. So I, I think we need to maintain our vigilance uh, there, working with uh, partners to try to. Uh, manage uh, the terrorism threat, but um, we know uh, you know Iran is perhaps the single biggest challenge to, to regional and world peace, and uh, I think it's absolutely critical we prevent them from ever acquiring a nuclear weapon. It's been 74 years since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and and uh, I you know, I think it's, uh, it's it's beyond scary to think about uh, how they might use that capacity, but um, I think it it is. It is nice to know that um, you know we can, uh, as I said, turn on your Christmas lights and uh, you know not have to make an appointment at the gas station based on what happens in in the Middle East. But I think we're always going to be interconnected, and it'll always have an impact, and we'll always have a national security interest in what happens to um, in the Middle East. Great. Okay, um, we've got a few minutes left. I'd like to take as many questions as we can in that time since we've got such a great audience here today. If you could, please just raise your hand, wait for the microphone, state your name and affiliation and question in the form of a question, and we'll get as many in as we can. We'll start with you. Hi, thank you. Tom Tiernan with the Foster Report. You talked about the U.S. becoming a, a global supplier in energy um, and less of a factor uh, for infrastructure threats around the world. Um, there's currently the trade dispute with China, uh, tariffs affecting exports to that country. I was wondering if you could, A, comment on a little bit on any trade negotiations you're hearing on possible agreement, and B, the fact that uh, the global supplier aspect brings trade negotiations into strategic effects of energy markets, more so than physical. Well, as you know, the President Trump, when he talks about trade, talks about trade deficits and actually the uh, our exporting more of energy does a lot to address that particular concern. But I see that in Dr. O'Sullivan in her book um, talks about this is a great opportunity for the U.S. and China um, to work more closely together because they have huge energy demands and we have a lot of energy to sell. And that could be an area of mutual uh, cooperation that I think uh, 
has, has some real uh, opportunity. I recently ran a read a characterization, the RAND Corporation, a uh, little paper I read, mm -hmm. just talking about how to think about China and Russia. And uh, they said that uh, Russia was a, is a rogue, not a rival. They said uh, China is a rival, not a rogue. And I thought that's kind of an interesting way for me to think about it. And I think we, we need to find ways to uh, coexist peacefully. And um, I think uh, President, the, this administration has done what previous administrations have been reluctant to do, and that is to challenge uh, China, uh, their theft of intellectual property, their unwillingness to play by the rules, even though they were admitted to the WTO. And um, I think he's right to call them on that. But I, I'm a little skeptical they're going to change their stripes in the long, in the long run. Um, but they're pretty clear about what their, their goals are. Uh, Made in China 2025, the Belt and Road Initiative. They're pretty clear about where, what they intend to do, and I think we need to take that seriously with the goal of peacefully coexisting uh, with this rival um, nation. So I, I, I'm hopeful that uh, what we'll see is some interim deal. It sounds like uh, uh, the, because of the cancellation of the meeting in, in Chile, and now they're looking for another location for President Xi and President Trump to go to sign this interim deal. And I think that makes a lot of sense, is let's see what we can agree on uh, now and then keep that conversation going. In the long run, I'm, 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 I'm skeptical um, because China is, uh, is definitely on the march and uh, wants to dominate uh, economically and uh, militarily too, particularly in the region. Um, so that's going to be a continuing challenge for us, but I'm, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic that we can continue to engage in a peaceful and constructive way. Okay. Okay. I will do Bill. Thank you, Senator. Bill Eichhorn, uh, energy consultant. Uh, just a question for you. There's, there's always the perspective of how much government regulation. Some people say none. Some people say a lot, and and therein, you know, there's there's a big middle, and there's so I'm looking for, sort of the the Goldilocks moment. What is your view in terms of getting to the innovation agenda and the all of the above strategy? What's your view of where we should be, how how much government intervention there should be in the market, if there's a feeling that we're not getting to, the more innovative approach fast enough? Yeah. Um, well, that's the. Uh, that's the, that's the right question to ask. I think it, everything doesn't have to emanate out of Washington, D.C., though. And uh, there's a lot of innovation that occurs at the state uh, level. Um, and uh, there's a lot of people, on, people like Bill Gates and others who are using their uh, philanthropy uh, to try to advance research and innovation and uh, solve some of these, these problems, too. Um, there are, I was, talking to my staff about uh, you know, how the U.S. Congress invests in um, research and development, but unlike our competitors, uh, we sort of hand the ball off uh, to the private sector and say, okay, now it's all yours, uh, while they have to compete with uh, other countries that provide uh, more resources to actually deploy uh, this technology and this innovation in a way that actually can work um, and uh, so that's something we need to figure out. So I, I don't think it's a, certainly a choice between no, no regulation and you know, complete regulation of government run. I think, I think it's good to uh, let the, uh, the private sector continue to do what it does best. 
For example, when I go to Sarah Week down in, um, in Houston every, just about every year, I'm always struck that this is, this is an energy conference, but it strikes me as more of a technology conference. I mean, it's like going to NASA uh, almost, uh, the way that uh, the private sector has come up with new and ingenious ways to um, address our energy uh, resources. So um, obviously there are environmental public safety uh, concerns where the, regu where the where government does have an important role to play, but I think what we need to try to do is to find ways not only to help in, help with the research and basic research and development places like at the Department of Energy, like my leading act would do on this emissions-free natural gas uh, electricity production, uh, but how do we actually uh, facilitate um, the deployment of that research and technology in the ways that actually can be viable and competitive with our uh, with other uh, competitors around the world? Great question, Bill. Sir, Thank you uh, for your remarks, Senator. I'm Jose Perez with uh, Hispanics in Energy. And uh, I would like to um, see if you could comment on the implications of, of your uh, message this morning uh, as it relates to Mexico, which mm -hmm. is our closest neighbor. And uh, we know that Mexico uses natural gas as one of its renewable energy strategies in order to deal with carbon emission issues. But uh, what's, uh, what are your thoughts in terms of the energy uh, uh, relationship with Mexico going into the future? Well, Mexico is blessed with a lot of natural resources um, as well. But, and uh, historically, of course, as you know, Pemex has uh, run that, the state-owned oil, oil company. And, um, but they have not kept up uh, with the in sort of innovation and uh, investment that we've seen in the United States and elsewhere, which has allowed them to produce those resources. They also have a, as unfortunately we were reminded of uh, just a few days ago, they have a terrible problem, obviously, with corruption and with um, you know, theft of uh, oil. Uh, from the pipelines is one of the chief sources of revenue from the car cartels in addition to selling drugs and other things. Uh, that's a real problem for Mexico. Um, but as a friend of mine pointed out one time, they said the uh, you know, shale doesn't stop at the Rio Grande and uh, there's a lot of opportunity I think Mexico has to develop its natural resources further and to become um, much more prosperous and much more um, raise the standard of living uh, for the Mexican people in a way that will help them, but it also will have a beneficial impact on us. But dealing with the, uh, dealing with the cartels uh, is, is really, I think, the number one challenge they have. And I was, I've been uh, disappointed to see uh, President Lopez Obrador said uh, it's, uh, he believes in hugs, not bullets when it comes to fighting the cartels. That's just, uh, it's, it's a little frightening. And now to see American citizens murdered down there where previously they had been out, out, out of bounds because the cartels knew if you attract the United States' attention in that way that it would have negative consequences for them. And I trust uh, there will be negative consequences. But uh, as I always tell people, um, the United States and Mexico, are uh, we are joined with a common border. We're like an old married couple. We have to get along. Uh, we have to make the marriage work. We don't really have any other choice. And so I believe in, in the constructive engagement with, with Mexico. Obviously, they're a huge trading partner for the United States, but 
helping them develop their uh, natural resources in a way that raises the uh, standard of living for Mexicans and helping them deal with their uh, law enforcement uh, problems, I think, are, are high priorities. Okay. I'll do one more question here. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Buckwald from Market Watch. Um, you mentioned the Leading Act quite a bit. I understand you're also a sponsor of the Escape Act. Can you maybe give us an update on how that's going? Well, there's actually a handful of um, bills that are focused on innovation, and those are, you just named the two of them. Um, and really, I think what we're trying to do, as I said earlier, is come up with a constructive problem-solving approach as opposed to what I would consider to be more of an ideological approach to climate and people's concerns about uh, um, the, the environment. And so, um, again, getting back to this innovation solution approach as opposed to more government, more taxes, more regulation, really with uh, a lot of uncertainty as to what that impact would be on, on our economy, on job creation, and on our competitiveness uh, globally. So both of those are uh, part of a package of about, I think about five or six bills that different members of the Senate have introduced. We're still at the very early stages of this. It's uh, uncertain what we're gonna be able to get done legislatively between now and November. Um, this little thing called impeachment, uh, sort of uh, sucking a lot of the oxygen out of the air. And, uh, but that, those are certainly high priorities for me and uh, I think something we need to talk about during the uh, presidential campaign and during these races in, in November. That's where we need to have a public debate and ask the questions, how is this going to work? If we ban fracking and we swear off all hydrocarbons, how are you gonna get from here to pick up your kids at school? Uh, you can't. If, and so um, I think that's the kind of conversation we really need to start focusing on. Well, when Senator Murkowski was here last week, I had said, you know, it seems really implausible that you'll be able to get some of these bigger energy ticket items done. And she said, no, no. You know, when the, the government was shut down, it was a very chaotic situation. We managed to pass one of the largest public lands bills, mm -hmm. you know, ever. She said so. And I said, well, if the recipe for a chaotic situation <laughs> is, is, is for a chaotic situation to be able to pass big legislation, you just might get your wish next year. So. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it, there's, there's sort of the public face of what's happened in Congress, and then there's really what happens, uh, uh, members working together to try to do what we can, even in spite of a... Uh, challenging, polarized uh, environment. Um, but we're going to keep keep at it. And I think uh, one of the things that I found is most important in legislation is perseverance. <laughs> and so uh, sometimes it, it never happens as fast as, you, as you'd like, but uh, by sticking with it and staying focused and not distracted, you can actually get some of this stuff done. Well, that's great. Well, listen, one of the ways we get uh, senators such as yourself to come here and speak is we let you go when we know you have meetings <laughs> on the other end. So uh, we'll do that now. But thank you very much for thank joining you, me. And, and please join me in thanking Senator Cornett. Thank you.